to the Space Biff Spacecast. As always, I am your host, Dan Thoreau, and today I am joined by my good friend, Ryan Lockett. Hey, everybody. How's it going? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Good. Thank you for joining us today. So recently, you published a board game that I think is one of the year's best, probably, unless the back half of the year is just like a knockout. Uh, I've heard that from a few reviewers. Oh, really? <laughs> it's like, it could be good, but you never know. It depends on what comes <laughs> next. This game, of course, is Sleeping Gods, which, uh, is it out? It Well, technically, yes. Technically, it's out. Hard to find, though. Hard to find because of some shipping issues. Yeah. Beyond your control. Uh, yeah. Unless you uh, ask your Kickstarter commenters. <laughs> yeah. Well, and... It sold out quickly, and the way shipping is uh, and manufacturing, it's it's a bit slower than normal. Okay. So, yeah. Do you have a secret stockpile of? This is just this is just something I'm curious about. When someone knows they have a hit, and maybe knows there will be some scarcity, do you keep back like hundred copies in your basement, and then like <laughs> under a pseudonym, you're like two hundred and fifty bucks. That would be smart, but <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay, just a thought for next time. But we've thrown it. I mean, jokingly, <laughs> people throw that out, that yeah. idea out there. Like, hey, let's secretly hold this back and make a ton of money. No, we don't do that, folks. We... That's not in your... Uh, Sorry, no. <laughs> that's not one of your business plans. So why, So I want to talk today about Sleeping Gods. I think it's a fascinating game for a, a few reasons, and we'll get into that. But why don't we begin with you? So I... I know that one of the things that always impresses me about you, Ryan, is that you're a bit of a triple threat. You could even say a quadruple threat. Um, so on this game, for example, you designed it, you illustrated it, you wrote it, and presumably you were the business guy who brought it into the world. Is that right. correct? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, with help, of course. Of course you Every one of these things that you mentioned, I have a little... Right assistance from you know other people so behind every locket there's a good assistant but, <laughs> yeah. but to begin with where did you how did you become the quadruple threat well i mean that's a good question as a teenager um i was obsessed with role-playing games mm -hmm. you know i would go to the game store and find whatever i could i'd try out rifts the rpg and dungeons and dragons and GURPS and all these games, mm -hmm. and then I would design my own. So I was doing um, kind of writing because of that, and doing art, and um, making these um, elaborate sort of games that we could play, you know, role-playing games. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of started me off, because I wasn't making a lot of, like, board games, per se, at that point. I had sure. played Catan, but it didn't, like blow me away i wasn't like whoa i love this so much i was really into role-playing games <laughs> yeah uh, it wasn't until my 20s until i got more into um, kind of euro mm -hmm. german games so i think just doing that as a hobby um as a teenager it, it was just for fun i didn't even really think it could be a career people mm -hmm. would be like are you gonna are you gonna do this for a career and i would sort of laugh and say like no, that's a career. People don't really do that yeah. as a career. <laughs> it didn't. It's like music was like what I was thinking, and mm -hmm. that's funny too because that's not really a career. 
that's very easy. I mean, people obviously are musicians for a career, but it's not, it's also a hard career. Right. But, it's hard to break into that. Oh yeah. So, um, and then when I was in my twenties, I started doing art for other companies because I was pitching like game designs to them and they mm -hmm. would see the game designs and they would see I could do art and they, nobody was taking the games, but they were like, Oh, you know, we need a little art. Can you do this mm -hmm. on the side? So I did that for, you know, 10 years sure, and then sort of moved into self-publishing. So what was your first game that you published on your own? It was uh, Empires of the Void. Oh, that's right. I played that. Yeah. It was a space game. It was like a, it's a, it's not really a 4X game. It's kind right, of like a 3X. A 3X. Yeah, yeah. That's what people call it. Yeah. I call it that. <laughs> oh, time. yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah, I vaguely remember that. So I think at the time you even mentioned that you didn't, you hadn't heard of 4X games and you kind of accidentally made a 3X game. Yeah. Like, I, so. I know a lot of people play like the Civ games. Mm -hmm. Those are like the right. Those are kind of the right. The, the most defining, popular, right. the defining 4X game. And then there's uh, Alpha Centauri, mm -hmm. stuff like that. I hadn't played any of those when I was a kid. Oh really? Yeah. No, I didn't play because I always saw people playing Civ, and I was like, that looks boring. That looks like boring, <laughs> right? Right. Sure. <laughs> a spreadsheet. It's like a spreadsheet. There's all these menus. Like I'm seeing people open these huge menus with all these numbers. I'm like, that's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't really know. I hadn't really played any of those games. I had played a lot of um, RTS games as a kid. Um, and I played Nexus Ops. And Empires of the Void, that's really where I came from. Oh, I came okay. from Nexus Ops. Oh, sure. Because that was like, you're kind of expanding really quick, and you're having these little skirmishes. Right. It even has, I even, you know, the combat system is very similar mm -hmm. as well. I mean, it's a different game, but yeah, that's where that came from. And very quickly, you moved into kind of a whole range of designs, or maybe it just feels quick in retrospect, where you did things like, um, what was called... Uh, Iron Age. What oh was yeah, it City of Iron. City of Iron. Yeah, and you had that was like Eight Minute Empire. Yeah, I did those almost at the same time. Oh really? Yeah, I so I worked really like for a year on City of Iron, and I put it on Kickstarter, and I was disappointed with the funding, because I was looking at everybody else at the time, and mm -hmm. like a lot of other games are getting higher funded, and I was like, wow, what the heck? So, because um, I really wanted to publish games for a living. And it was not working out. So I was like, oh, I need another game. So I came up with 8-Minute Empire in like a week. <laughs> <laughs> so in retrospect, which one is the better game? Judge your own games for us. 8-Minute Empire is, is it's the, it's funny because it's, it actually, it's, it's had much more, um, it's had a much longer run. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people know what it is like a lot more people know what that game is it's got it has an app um i would even say it's it's kind of an influential game mm. i think at that time um it sort of influenced um i think after eight minute empire there were a lot of kind of smaller kind of micro games yeah i wouldn't call eight minute empire exactly a micro game but right. it felt like right after that that was sort of the start of kind of a, 
I don't want to say it started that. I'm sure there were other micro games, sure. obviously, Love Letter and stuff like that. But I think I saw other games kind of emulate kind of what it was doing, mm-hmm. and maybe even in a, like a better way. Um, because I think it's not... I, I don't think 8-Minute Empire is actually the best version of that game I could design. I think I could design a better version of 8-Minute Empire now. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, that's what I could do. You know, yeah. I did the, the best I could do. Yeah. So do you ever look back on old designs with that mentality and think maybe I should revisit that now? I mean, so you have, of course, done Empires of the Void 2. You've done a second edition of City of Iron. So you have revisited some ideas. Yeah. And even today, we're going to talk about something that could be considered a re- a revisiting of an idea you've done a couple of times before. But have you ever looked back and thought, maybe I should redo something like Eight Minute Empire? Now, we, now that I've grown into my full form. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, maybe I, there's still room to grow here, but <laughs> the Eight Minute Empire is one I have, I'm constantly throwing ideas around, like, in my head. Oh, I, I want to revisit this, you know. Mm-hmm. There's something here. It's really interesting. It's like a light, you know, fast area control game. Um, and to be honest, it's, I always want to redo games. So people hate that. People hate that I do yeah. second editions. It's, well, a lot of it seems like people hate it. Um, but as a designer, it, I guess I'm kind of like George Lucas. Like, I cannot leave it alone. <laughs> like I gotta go back and gotta put the the CG in there and add a ruin band. it. <laughs> yeah, add a band playing bad Nintendo music. <laughs> right. Uh, so like for example, I really want to redo Islebound. Oh sure. I really want to redo that one. I really want to redo Above and Below, mm-hmm. but I'm not gonna touch Above and Below because I think. I honestly think whatever I do will actually make it worse hmm. or make it less popular. Okay. There's something that it's like the bad parts about it are what have made it popular. Mm-hmm. Like the quote bad parts, like the parts that bug me. Yeah. I would, I would erase and like, it would be less popular, I think. So what is it that bugs you about above and below? Like everything I see as a game designer that's wrong with the game as like a Euro from a Euro game design point of view. Mm-hmm. Like it's so there's so much like planning as you, you know, you're buying the right buildings and stuff, but there's also like a ton of randomness. Mm-hmm. Like your end game score is so heavily based upon if you go into an adventure and you get the right good, mm-hmm. like if you get the wrong good, like that's a huge, but that's like the, that gambling aspect is what, I think makes people like the game. Like, mm-hmm. and when I say people, I just mean like general people. Like, it's exciting. It's like gambling. You're like pulling the lever. Like, what do I get this time? Yeah. And I think maybe like Euro gamers hate that because it's like I'm taking the control away. Right. You know? Oh, it didn't matter what I did in the game. I lost because the game was just too random. Yeah. But that, in some ways, that's what fan, some fans like about it. Yeah. So Above and Below is an interesting case study almost because I feel like I hear a lot of people telling me why they don't like it. And yet I feel like it's one of these games that a lot of people like. I'm just not hearing from those people. So 
I mean, to to be clear, I I feel like that game gets some of the like it feels like it gets more criticism than many of our other games. Mm-hmm. It also has outsold our other games by many times, like many times. Oh over. wow! Oh yeah, it's and it's like our highest ranked game on Board Game Geek. Like mm. it's, I, I'm pretty sure it still is. Um, so that one, yeah, people like it, but it does seem to get the most criticism. Hmm. Maybe that just goes hand in hand with volume. Yeah, I, yeah. Like, like the wingspan be. effect. Yeah, it, it could be true. Have you played Wingspan? Yeah. Did yeah. you like it? I do. Um, when I played it, I remember thinking, like, it's the kind of game I like. Um, I like card building, matching mm-hmm. ta- tableau type games. But I also remember, remember thinking, like, like feeling like, ah, like, I could have done this, like, a bunch of times. In fact, I have a bunch of designs just like this sure. that I threw away because I was like, eh, it's too samey. Yeah, it's too much like so many other games. Sure. Um, I'm not saying they were as good as Wingspan. I'm sure they were not as good as Wingspan. But, like, it made me feel like there's, I think there's, like, a, there's sort of a vanity Mm -hmm. that I have where, like, if people complain that I'm not, like, I'm copying other people or I'm, like, not being innovative, Mm -hmm. it bugs me so bad. Yeah. And so I always try to do something... Not always, but I usually try to do something that I, that's not like other things. Yeah. You know, like I'm not gonna do another worker placement game. You know, even though I feel like worker placement games are really popular still. Right. Even even seven years ago, I was like, okay, worker placement's over. That's <laughs> been so done to death. I hate those. Guys. I'm so sick of those games. Right. And yet, it's still like the most popular, uh, like hobby game. Hobby, right. hobby style game and and the new ones that come out hardly have anything new about them they have like sure. a tiny little tweak yeah and and they sell like crazy it's such a natural format i feel like yeah it's just very gamey yeah. and in a good way not in like a not in a pejorative way just like i sit down and i feel like it kind of boils down board games into this very into a kind of an essential format yeah where you're like all this stuff I'm doing in board games is putting down things to get things and then putting down things to make those things into other things and then putting down things to make them into points. And work replacement is kind of like, well, let's dispel with the illusion. <laughs> yeah. Here, here's what you're doing. This is the mechanic. It's like, yeah, you're right. It, it, it cuts away the whole facade. You can see exactly yeah. the, the gears turning. Right. And maybe that's why it's so popular. And it, the funny thing is... When it comes down to it, I mean, half the games I play are probably worker placement games. So. Sure. I would contend, Ryan, that actually you included a little bit of worker placement in Sleeping Dogs. Well, I did. I did. And okay, I'm so almost you're... ashamed to admit it, but I did. <laughs> and and I, I, I will freely admit that there are probably worker placement games um, in our future. In fact, now that I'm really thinking about it, our next release is a worker placement game. Uh oh. But you know, it's not it's I'm gonna defend myself here and say like I feel like worker placement is um 
in, in the most general sense is where like you have a limited number of workers mm -hmm. and it's an action drafting system. So you place a worker and that took away an action from the next player mm -hmm. and that player chooses another. And so you're weighing actions. Whereas the next game now or never, it doesn't really have that aspect to it because you only have one guy oh, okay. moving around on a big map. So it is is it a sequel? It is. Okay. Yeah, it's the so third in the trilogy. Okay. Does that mean it's so trilogy? Is yeah. it going to? Does that mean it's the end, or is it going to be an increasingly no. inaptly named trilogy? <laughs> no. This is this is it. Okay. This is like George Lucas saying, like when the original trilogy was done, and he was like, "Yeah, there's there's no more Star Wars. We're done." And then we'll see yeah. in two decades where <laughs> where things land. Yeah. No. So at this point. Yeah, this is this is it for that trilogy. You know what I would have liked for Star Wars, Ryan? Yeah. I would have liked if George Lucas had quit after one movie. <laughs> because honestly, I only like one Star Wars movie, and it's named Star Wars. <laughs> well, I, um, I actually love the first two. I love Empire. Yeah. But um, I think it's almost like, for me... The first two movies are like their own universe, uh -huh. and then um, everything after that is like a different universe. Yeah, it changes. It's like I almost wish I could. I would be really interested to just like explore that universe um, instead of sort of what it turned into. Yeah, so you're not a phantom apologist. Uh, well, I actually don't think that's. I think it's. Oh, I, it's the best prequel. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm an apologist, but I think it's the best prequel movie. Is it? Yeah, personally, I haven't seen them since I was a teenager, so I I, I have to abstain. I, I will bow I, to your knowledge. Well, I've only seen the prequels, uh, maybe a handful of times mm -hmm. each of them. But I think, I think, I think Phantom is the best of the prequels, personally. Okay. Even with that little kid, like, smarming it up all over the place. Oh, I know. There were so many annoying things in the movie, but... But I guess even his adult form was pretty annoying. Well, yeah, you could say that. But, I mean, I will say this. In general, I enjoy Star Wars. That's a nice, safe line. <laughs> My least favorite Star Wars movie? Star Wars 9. Is that the one with, that's like... The, that's the, the brand new one. The one that has the Emperor looking like a tech priest from, like, Warhammer? Yeah. uh-huh. Yeah. That's my least favorite one. I didn't like it either. I have seen every Star Wars movie. Oh, okay. Isn't that just awful? Well, I know you, you're you not a Star Wars fan. Yeah. So that's uh, interesting. It's because every time one comes out, I'm, I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to go to this. But then friends or family are like, hey, we're getting a, together a huge group to go on our pilgrimage to see Star Wars. <laughs> and we got you a ticket already. Uh, yeah. And it would be a personal offense if you if you said if no. you said no we would so think I up, you were a big jerk if yeah you said no. i ended up going and suffering through six hours of whatever that movie was where he holds up like a stencil Ugh. <laughs> it was so dumb <laughs> okay now so since you've brought up above and below above and below and near and far are both games that have storybooks yeah so does Sleeping Gods. So does Sleeping Gods. Connection? You tell me. <laughs> well, you know they're different. 
Oh, I know this. <laughs> I, read your, I read your review. Why don't you... <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, why don't you introduce Sleeping Gods to those of us who are maybe listening at home. They don't know what it is, or they only know the word, the name. What is Sleeping Gods? Sleeping Gods is a storybook game that is an open-world board game. And it and my goal when I designed it was to be a truly open-world experience. Like, like you're stuck in the middle of a very big map, mm-hmm. and you can just go in any direction. And wherever you go, you'll have a different experience. Like, mm-hmm. that's your choice on where to go and who to interact with. That's, that's like, a huge part of what your experience is. Right. What's interesting about that, just as a side note, is when people play this game, it's almost like everyone's experience is like unique and totally different. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when you played through the game, you might have played through a certain storyline and had a certain ending that was totally different than maybe another person. Mm-hmm. And maybe that person would have liked your version like a lot better, but <laughs> they didn't like their version. Uh-huh. You know, that's the weird thing about this game. Is like sure. somebody might have a better or worse experience based on their taste and based on what stories they, they have. Oh, that's interesting. So I have actually uh, played through the campaign all the way twice. Oh, wow. Um, and it's been very different both times. Oh, cool. Uh, which is something I, I really liked about it. Yeah. Um, so I remember a few years ago you showed me an early version of it and you pitched it to me sort of as Skyrim. Yeah. Uh, as an open, as a board game. Yeah. Uh, so looking back, and I, I think it in, in many ways is, looking back, do you feel like, was that the pitch for yourself all the way throughout, or did that modify as you continued to develop it? So my, my original idea was I want to make a board game that feels like... Um, when I was a kid, when I played Baldur's Gate for the first time, mm-hmm. I wanted it to feel like that. And it, the, I wanted it to feel like that, like, I wanted the tone to be somewhat similar. I wanted um, there to be dialogue, mm-hmm. there to be quests, and I wanted people to just sort of be able to go wherever. Mm-hmm. And um, so, to, to be honest, I mean, Skyrim obviously was like an influence, and I had recently played um, uh, Zelda: Breath of the Wild, mm-hmm. and those two games were sort of my mechanically. That's what I was sort of thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was looking at those two games, like how 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 do people make these open world systems work? Mm-hmm. Because it's totally different than like a Euro game. Yeah. You know, how do you keep people engaged when they are not? competing against each other mm-hmm. that's really tough for me actually yeah i think euro games in some ways are a lot easier because to design because you can just sort of come up with ways for players to fight each other yeah but that was what was so hard about this doing a game like this so yeah like Baldur's gate Baldur's gate 2 and skyrim and, and you know yeah. zelda so what 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 lessons did you draw from a game like Skyrim? How how does one go about designing an open world game? Um, so for just for reference, one of the reasons I asked this is one of my favorite open world games is Fallout New Vegas. Oh yeah. Which for me, so I grew up playing 
the original two Fallout games. Right. And then Fallout 3 came out and it was kind of the candy corn, you know, yeah. version of the Fallout universe. And I've only played Fallout 1. Oh, so, okay, really? Yeah. Yeah, and so it was kind of grim and realistic. Yeah. And Fallout 3 was kind of silly. And, but Fallout New Vegas returned to that. But one oh, of, I've played New Vegas. Oh, you have? Sorry. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah you've played New yeah. Vegas. So New Vegas does something really cool where even though it's open, uh, it wants you to take a particular route. And if you go the other way, you can. You're allowed to, but you'll probably die. Then the monster kills yeah, you. Yeah, Deathclaw yeah. Valley yeah. kind of area. <laughs> it's going to wipe you out if you get seen. Right. Um, so, so what did you do? Did you kind of gate people into routes that you wanted them to take? or So were you kind of a Skyrim go-anywhere model, or did you kind of soft gate? I mean, Breath of the Wild kind of does that, too. You don't want to go to the lava... Yeah, mountain. Yeah, I don't remember right. the names. Whatever it is. Yeah, but you know, you need cold clothes. You need hot clothes. Oh yeah, that's how they gate it. Yeah. In that game. Yeah, there is kind of a gate, and that's the quest system. Mm-hmm. So you go somewhere, you get a quest card, and it says, uh, "Oh, you know, it's the it's the start of the quest," and so that'll give you a vague sort of direction to go, mm-hmm. and those kind of keep you in that first map for a while. If you just use those first quests, they sort of keep you in that same area. Now, that starting map can have some mean surprises. Sure. <laughs> but um, they, I feel like it's a good, in general, it's it's a good way to get you started, especially to get you, like, powered up mm-hmm. so that you can handle stuff in the, in the maps that are, like, the adjacent maps. And then eventually you'll get some quests that sort of lead you into the other maps. So there isn't... It's it's kind of a, a mix. There's not a ton of gating mm-hmm. in the game. It's it is a little more like Skyrim because if you want to, you could just go like as far as you want to right off the bat, sure, and like get killed in the corner map. So it's more carrot than stick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I feel like I didn't nail the difficulty in the game, mm-hmm. like the, the 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 difficulty scaling. Sure. <laughs> I, I feel like I could have done a better job, but um, it, man, unless you make something like this, it it's sort of like you get to a point where it feels like you're juggling like a thousand balls at once, mm-hmm. and like you're dragging like an elephant, and like to change directions is like almost impossible. Yeah. Like <laughs> that's how it felt near the end of the development. Yeah. I imagine there's, how do you even get all of this, kind, like spreadsheets? Did you buy a hundred whiteboards? I mean, what we, yeah, we, so I printed out the whole map um, and we taped it on the wall of our office mm-hmm. and then we would write notes on it and put sticky notes all over it. Oh no. Oh yeah. And, and Sounds so, like a mess. It was a mess. And so like Brenna would be in there writing stuff, circling numbers and renumbering things. We had to renumber stuff. Oh my gosh. It, it was on, it was honestly like the biggest mess, but a lot of it, we just had to remember. Uh-huh. And then there was a certain point where we just near the end of development, we just read through the book and we would just look for every missing, every, every thread that didn't have an end. Mm-hmm. We like made a giant list like, okay, we've got this huge game. Let's read through the book. And find every missing end. Oh no! And so that that list got huge. You know, right. it was like pages of 
of quests with no end. Yeah. Even though like the book was already huge. And that, so that was kind of the, the last step. It was like fill in every little gap. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was wow. a complicated process for sure. So when you say that you didn't nail the difficulty level, I know I've heard a lot of people say it's tough. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I liked about it, did you ever play the first Mass Effect? Yeah. When the, when the first, the legendary, the, like the complete edition just came out. I haven't played it, so my memory might be foggy, but I remember when the first Mass Effect came out, um, there was this feeling like you can die at any time. That's how dangerous yeah. its, its world was. And that's one of the things that appealed to me about Sleeping Gods is... Um, I felt like sometimes you'd get little signals like, well, this is a haunted island. Are you sure you want to land there at level <laughs> zero or whatever you're at? Like, right. Are you sure? <laughs> um, yeah. And then, you know, you'd go and get party wiped by a monster. I kind of liked that, actually, but it seems like a lot of people didn't. So why don't you walk us through that? Not only you have made a uh, easy mode. Yeah. So I, I like that about games mm -hmm. um i love the i love demon souls and dark souls those okay. games and i like them because um i i love games where it feels like the game could kill you um and there's like a i, lo I love the tension that comes from that mm -hmm. you know and i love it when games give me a wall to push yeah you know like and so, and so obviously that influenced the design here. Yeah, like I wanted people to reach an encounter and it could, because thematically I want people to feel like they're in a dangerous place. Yeah. You know, that's exciting. It's like, oh, if, if, if it's not dangerous and you never die, yeah. it's like, who cares? You know, it's boring. The decisions I make won't matter. Yeah. So the decisions, every decision feels weighty when you know you could die. You know, like when you watch a movie and the movie kills somebody mm -hmm. and, and you're like, oh my gosh, no one's safe. Like right. it kills a main character. It Ned Starks at you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Then yeah. you, then you know, like, oh, this is serious. Like right. people, people actually die here. And so in some ways that's why in the first map you can get party wiped. Right. But like a video game. You know the game's not over. You don't have to start from the beginning. Right. Like, you, it punishes you. And I, it's interesting because people have really had a negative. Some people have had a really negative reaction to like getting party wiped, mm -hmm. which I, I can understand. But it's not. It's not like other open world board games. Like other world board games, um, open world board games. If you die, that's it. Right. right. Most of them. Yeah. You have to start way over. Yeah. You don't have to do that here. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I've been a little surprised at, at the. So one of the ways that you mitigate it for those who uh, might be listening and don't know is so you put the player, you do something that is very not Skyrim. Yeah. But it is very Fallout 1. Yeah. Um, they're on a time limit. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, Fallout so, 1 has that. Yeah. yeah Fallout 1 has a time limit. You need to. Uh, Recover the water chip yep. before, before the, everyone, everyone dies. Yeah, yeah. they're going to die. They don't have water. Um, and, I, and I don't remember it being a harsh time limit, but there was a time limit in Fallout 1. And here you you put in a time limit. And the way it works is pretty basic. Why Do, do you want to walk us through it? Yeah, so uh, every turn, you draw an event card. Mm -hmm. uh, you The event deck has 18 cards in it. 
um, and you go through that deck three times, and then the game's over. And so when you die, quote, die, um, that kills your time. Because in the game, what's happening is, like, thematically, you need time to, like, escape and recover. Right. That's sort of the idea. So it's killing some of that time. So it, it will affect your ending. So it does matter, you know. Mm -hmm. If you die too much or you keep failing too much, yeah, you will have an ending that um, maybe you weren't shooting for mm -hmm. uh, or what you weren't expecting. So um, that was sort of to keep the tension up. Every, mm -hmm. It makes every decision mean more. Which is interesting because when I was playing Breath of the Wild and uh, Skyrim, they have zero time limit. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how do they maintain people's interests? Like, and so for the first half of development, we didn't have a time limit. Because mm -hmm. I, I was thinking, okay, open world game, we can't have a time limit. Yeah. But I eventually caved. Like, in a board game, I feel like you need it. Yeah. Do you feel like there's any version of this game that doesn't have a time limit? It, how would you maintain any form of tension or suspense? Yeah, like, in... So the, the difference between a video game is that, I don't know, like, do you have an insight here? Because in a video game, so in a board game, if you have no time limit, people might just repeat things over and over again mm -hmm. to, like, um, to power up. So, like, for example, let's say you lose all your health, but I'm, I, I, I put in a rule that says uh, you can rest and you you get two HP for per turn or something. Yeah. And then somebody just does that for like three in-game months. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like they just take like tw like 30 turns, you know. Right. Oh, we'll just, you know, and they just repeat it over and over again. Right. It takes away all the tension from the game. In a video game, it almost works because it's killing your time. Yeah. It's like tedious. So you're right. paying tedium yeah. to do that. Yeah. But in a board game, it just doesn't feel like it works, especially from a Euro game perspective. Right, right, right. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting, so thinking about the Skyrim connection, is when I played Skyrim and I put in, you know, I don't want to look on Steam, uh, <laughs> but I put in my 200 hours, probably more, much more than that, 350 hours um, into that game. But I always play as kind of a sneaky thief archer kind of person. Oh, yeah. And I feel like everyone does. I do. Yeah, I, I feel like everyone does with a little magic, kind of, yep, kind of utility magic. magic. And um, you're going to lock picking and sneaking and archery. And anyway, um, for me, where the tedium came down and what sort of ruined the game for me in the end is my character got to a point where I was super powerful. I could one stealth shot anything, anything. like yeah. a dragon, you know, yeah. dagger a dragon to death and steal its soul. Um, <laughs> I, but I got to the point where I was stealing so much stuff, and there was nothing in the game preventing me from literally stealing everything. Yeah. And then just fast traveling between like the game's three or four fences, yeah. and selling my junk and waiting in game until they had replenished they had their replenished money. The money. Yeah. And and there was nothing stopping me, and I didn't need to do this. You know, I had like four million coins oh, yeah. in game. Um, I'm getting. I'm. I get to that point too in Skyrim. I have so much stuff that loot it, it becomes meaningless right and actually so i would argue that i actually prefer what you've done here to most open world games now i know that that it doesn't fit the mold so some right. people aren't going to agree 
Yeah. But I actually really like that tension. So I've been thinking a little bit, how would I play Skyrim if it had, now I don't want some hard time limit, Yeah. but if it did something where it's like, okay, so there's 120 dungeons in the base map, you can clear 40 of them. Um, like, am I going to prioritize certain things over other things? You know, you won't do as many tedious, meaningless things. Right. I would. I would have to target my quests. Yeah. I would have to pick like which which storyline do I want to see the end of, and that's what we ended up doing in Sleeping Gods, because we had you know, halfway through the game we've got this huge stack of quests. Right. Every right. time you go to a city, you pick up three or four quests. So we've got this huge stack, and we pull out our little atlas. And we've got all these spots that we could go, and we're going to prioritize them. And I loved having to do that. Um, what What do you think? Do you, you can just say that you're better than Skyrim if you want, but I mean, <laughs> no. I mean, is that a negotiated thing? At what point did you just? What made you decide to put in that time limit? It, it was like halfway through the game, and the the design process. We've been working on it like a year, over a year. And I was watching, I, I was I was paying attention to how I felt after playing a session mm -hmm. and watching what other people were doing and, and seeing how the game was incentivizing tedium. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't want players' experience when they, when they get up from the game to be like, we did this 30 times. Yeah, we did accounting this session. Yeah. Like... And you know what? In some ways it works in video games because if it's just you, you know, you can waste as much time as you want. But if it's a group of four, yeah, they're not going to have fun just doing the same thing over and over again. Imagine playing Skyrim and doing that, like, repetitive stuff just to get money or playing Zelda with four people, like, taking turns. Like, now it's your turn to, 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 right. go, <laughs> like, to kill the thing and go sell it. Now it's your turn to do the exact same thing. Like you're not gonna have memorable story moments in because of that. Like I so it kind of condenses what was important okay. um, in, in the experience. I want players to feel that tension and, and move to, to do to have more story encounters. Mm -hmm. Now to me this raises one of the kind of a a meta question that's that I find very interesting, this question about identity and the player role within that. So um, in Sleeping Gods, there are, um, how many crew members is it? Nine? Yeah, nine. So there's, there's eight kind of normal crew members, and then there's Captain Sophie Odessa. Yeah. And control over Captain Odessa is shared. Right. Between players. So whoever's the active player is considered to be Captain Odessa, and they kind of make the final call on everything that turn. Um, at what, when did that come about? Because... To me, that's very interesting that you are actually dividing a role and asking players to act literally as one person, not just as different people within the, <laughs> with the same goal, but as the same person. Right. I think it was, we actually messed around a lot with this, like where one player was always the captain, mm -hmm. you know, and another player was always, that's how a lot of other uh, game board games like this do it, you sure. know? You know, Joe plays this character. Mary plays this character. Every session, that's right. their character. Um, but here, because it's so focused on like story, um, and because I wanted each player to to be able to have their turn being like 
the hero being in charge. Mm-hmm. That that's sort of why we we did that. And like from a story writing perspective, um, it just felt a lot more natural to use a second person perspective mm-hmm. and make Captain Odessa the hero. Yeah. You know, um, from a player's point of view, it makes you feel there's a we could argue about this, but like there's a certain sense of immersion that you get in a, in a branching narrative game when it's second person. Mm-hmm. I have tried third person, you know, third person past tense right. and that works too. But, um, and I know it, I actually think it's harder to write interesting, um, in an interesting way in second person. Mm-hmm. There are limitations there. Oh, sure. I mean, especially with like you 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 don't want to get too far into like telling people how they're feeling like right you feel this way <laughs> right you feel that way and then it's like what no i don't you crapped your pants <laughs> i wouldn't i, I would not that. so in many ways sophie odessa is kind of a blank slate yeah and that sort of lets the players kind of um in, Pro- project in ages, yeah project onto yeah. that character the other characters are, are a little more um they have a little more personality than sophie mm-hmm. odessa does yeah do you feel like you hit a strong balance in, in that regard? Uh, it may, I mean, yes, maybe so. accidentally. I don't yeah. know. I mean, <laughs> it seems like it works for a lot of groups. Um, we wrote, we tried to write in a way where we didn't, we gave players like a platform to like jump off of. Mm-hmm. And if they wanted to extrapolate role play, they, you kind of can. You know, yeah. we're not giving the paragraphs aren't like huge, you know, you're not reading like a wall of text every time you go somewhere. Yeah. Do you feel like so one of the things I contended in my in my review is that I feel like this works as a cooperative thing, uh, maybe for that exact reason that you're saying that everyone is thinking of themselves as Captain Odessa uh, far better than in above and below or near and far, just because no one, you're never taking a break from your story. Yeah. To listen to somebody else's. That's interesting. It's like the fact you have to take a break. Yeah. Makes that more effective. Yeah. And makes the stories more interesting for everybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah they, like everyone gets a. We're all in this story together. Yeah. Instead of like a near and far or above and below. Right. It's only that. It's only that player's story. So like, yeah. I'll just look at my phone. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And when I remember that being a complaint that a, a lot of people have had with Above and Below, is like here you're playing this game where you're trying to plan things out. It's kind of a Euro game. And now we're gonna we're gonna take a break while Jeff reads his crap. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's not happening to me, so why should I? Right. Yeah. And I knew having struggled I mean, having developed both those games, I knew that a co op game was actually a much better um uh, type of game for a story, mm-hmm. like just in general. Like the reason I was doing near and far and above and below is because I I like that the, there aren't really many Euro games with like a story element mm-hmm. that are competitive, and I was sort of pushing that because I liked how unique it was. Mm-hmm. But in general, as they're not no, they're not as immersive as like a co-op game. Or sharing that story, yeah. You know? And having said that, the, the, our next game it's back to the near and far sure. thing. 
<laughs> so, but it, it, what's interesting about that game is like I know the limitations, mm-hmm. um, and so like in many like the basic game is no story. Mm-hmm. You don't do stories in the basic oh, really? game. Yeah, okay. you just play. It's just a euro game. If you want the stories, there's a campaign. Oh, okay. But the basic game, you don't do stories. Okay. So like, I, I know a lot of people enjoy Near and Far, and like I enjoy it too, and enjoy the stories. But I know that the Sleeping Gods setup is better for storytelling. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, since we're talking about Above and Below and Near and Far as well. Which came first in sort of this chicken egg situation? Did you have the idea for Sleeping Gods? You know, you mentioned role playing games being an influence. How how far back did you think of Sleeping Gods as an idea? Was that before Above and Below, or did it grow out of your experiments with narrative storytelling? I think it it you know it 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 grew out of maybe seeing the limitations that were there with Near and Far. Mm-hmm. Um, and it grew out, you know, from, from my love of like, you know, role-playing games as a kid and, um, just wanting to try that, you know, explore that. I think for me, co-op games are hard to design. I think they're harder to design Mm -hmm. than like competitive Euro games. Competitive Euro games, you, it's so it's so nice. You just have to focus on the mechanisms about get players to compete with each other, you know, in different ways. Right. And then balance it. It's like a lot different than (laughs) like putting a storybook in a game, especially like this is it's like a hundred times harder than designing a hero game. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting to hear you say that because it does feel like a more natural format for it. Oh yeah. Um, so how did you go about keeping players engaged when they can't have each other to bounce off of? That, yeah, that was one of the biggest challenges. Um, you know, we tried a lot of things and we've talked about a few of these things, like a time limit, Mm -hmm. you know, you can feel that tension. Every decision matters a lot more, uh, when there's a time limit, um, But when it comes down to it, I, I was noticing players were just really wanting to see how these stories ended. So mm-hmm. making multi-level quests. Yeah. That's a huge part of it. You were mentioning, like, they have, you have the whole, you have all these quests. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, such a desire to, like, see how they pan out. Like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen here? Right. And I actually did not really think about that until, like, I was watching groups. I was watching groups and and there were players that were, they didn't want to leave. They didn't want to leave the game because they wanted to see it at the end of this quest. They wanted to see how this happened. What about this guy? What's he going to do to us? Is he going to kill us? Is he going to betray us? Is he going to give us some awesome new information that will, you know, so it's really the story conclusions that keep players engaged. Okay. So kind of a, 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 a tales of the Arabian nights, not the game, but the actual tales. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, you're dangling, the... yeah, you're dangling the ending <laughs> in front of people. Right. And and that it's almost like that was a, an accidental discovery. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I have a question for you on that. Um, where the hell is that tower? <laughs> because I, can, I could not find 
we were on a quest. We were supposed to find some tower. Point to me. I have uh, Ryan is here with me live. Point. Where where was I supposed to go <laughs> to find this well, dumb tower? What's what's tower is it? Well, I went to a place where there were three things that I. It sent me off in three totally different quests, um, in order to. I don't want to spoil anything. Okay. Okay. Did you get it here? Did you get it in the, the thunderstorm? I don't think so. Okay. Let's see. Um, it's it's hard for me to answer because. See, see, I part of me is like Lucra City looks like a tower. Oh yeah, this is the this is a tower that was built by the gods. Yes, and and, and, and there are a couple quests involved that that have to do with that tower. Because because we were supposed to find god stuff. Okay. But I mean that describes so much of the game. <laughs> I know. <I'm... laughs> and we could never find a dang tower. Okay. It was driving us bananas. Um. Gosh, I wish it I really ruined our experience. No, no, it didn't ruin our experience. <laughs> um, our last play, we found um, 11 totems. Oh, Is that good or bad? That's good. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. In fact, I've seen people say they're, they're finding like 18. Oh, my God. I, I honestly am floored. I, How? I'm looking at... I see people say they're finding 18, and I, and I think, oh, you're cheating. Yeah, I do, too. I've, I've never found that many. Yeah, those are... Those are... <laughs> Filthy pants on fire cheaters, right? And maybe they maybe they figured it out, but I personally I've never found that much, that many. In you, know, I, you could play this game. So let's talk about replayability. So you could play this game. Have you ever played Time Stories? Yeah. Where you have to do the same loop and it's kind of tedious, right? Yeah. Because you have, you go back, you yeah, do the same you, thing, you but you now you same, know more. Right. So you don't like do the toilet plunger thing in the first one where you just waste time. <laughs> like you know where all the time wasters are. So you skip them. You could play this game like Time Stories, where you like memorize routes yeah, and optimal ways to get totems. But where does the replayability come from for you? Um, <laughs> how many times do you think somebody could play this campaign before they are really seeing a bunch of repeat content? I mean, I think the base game you could play like five times. Oh, okay. five campaigns before you start to see a lot of repeat. And then even then you would probably, there'd be little things you, little. Yeah. Because some of these quests, what's interesting is some of these quests lead to, like a lot of them, if you choose one path, it'll lead to one totem. Mm -hmm. And if you choose another path, it'll lead to another one. Oh, okay. And so like, there's no way in, that you could play and sometimes you couldn't get two specific ones because okay. it was a like a branching choice. Oh, that's cool. So there are there are a lot of <clears throat> things like that in the game. If you add the expansion, I mean, that adds another three campaigns probably. Okay. So well, and that's so much of the fun is seeing the way that those totems kind of alter your approach going forward. Oh yeah. Um, I think at one point I had a totem that kind of um, let us disrupt the uh, deck a little bit even. Oh. And felt like we could have some extra time. Yeah. Yeah. I think the one you're mentioning um, technically can break the game. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. Yeah, we never even used it. We got it, and we we're like, "Well, that seems cheap," so we yeah. just kind of put it in our storage. Well, yeah, it, we had to errata that card. Oh, really? Yeah, we did. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah. So, what was the decision to? Uh, I, I have noticed a couple people feel like it's maybe cheap, or maybe uh, that you're a bit of a money grubber. Having had a release day DLC, basically, um, <laughs> like so, Tides of Ruin is the no. expansion, 
and it's mapped, you know, we look at the uh, the atlas here, and we can see Tides of Ruin uh, portions right here. Is that just something, like, was that necessary for you to, to carve it up that way? Like, it would be too expensive to pack it all into one box? Or what was the thinking there? Yeah, we, so, okay, here, uh, here I'm going to defend myself. Here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've laid a serious allegation at your feet. Not me. People, I've seen no, people I've kind seen, of feel No, I've that seen way. that, sure. Um, this is what we were thinking when we made that decision. So, um, I wanted the, I wanted the game mm -hmm. to like the base game to be a little more accessible. Oh, sure. To like, um, you know, maybe to more people, mm -hmm. um, instead of like, oh, you have to pay $120 mm -hmm. to get into this experience. So we made the decision about halfway through to split it. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like I'm actually surprised at the DLC comment because I feel like for what you, for what the game costs, uh -huh. you're getting a lot of content, uh -huh. like even in the base game. In fact, I would say if you just buy the base game, most people are not going to even play through all that stuff. Yeah. Like, and, and so, so I think I can totally understand sort of the desire to have everything mm -hmm. like, oh, I want the whole experience. But it, the reason we did this is so that like, you know, it would be a lot more accessible to, to more people to just yeah. get into the game. Like, because me as a game, like I, I'm a game collector, you know, I've got way too many games just like all of us. Right. Um, so paying $120 for a game, I'm not. You know, it's not unheard of for me. Sure. But I think for a lot of people, that is, that's like an outrageous sure. amount. Oh, you know, you yeah. Know, for a board game. So that was the really the goal there. Okay. And that makes sense to me because when I see that I can try a game for 50 bucks, that's a huge difference from, say, 100 Right. Um, and I don't even know what it's priced. I mean, it's still priced. 70 and 120. Is, is that like, what it is or something? No, no. I mean, it's... Um, 85 okay, MSRP. 85. Yeah. But, you know, had we not split it, it would have been, a, you know, above 100. Yeah. Um, well, and that's one reason I have no interest in the upcoming, uh, is it like the fourth edition of Descent? Oh. It's like 120 bucks. I have no desire to, <laughs> to take that gamble. Yeah. I don't know what I'm getting into. It's, yeah, it is a lot. Yeah, like the higher price something is, the more gamble of a gamble yeah. it is. Um, and it's, it, it was sort of like, well, if you, if you, if you exhaust this game, there's more, you know, yeah. that's <laughs> it. And, and the thing is by building it into the base game a little more, mm -hmm. and really the only thing that's built in is just the map Yeah. where you, you have this little map. So you, you'll you know, never like find a quest that's like to continue this quest. No. By the expansion. Right. Yeah. Okay. We did. We made sure not to do that because yeah. I didn't want to be like. Oh, there's a quest in here, and it says like it requires tides of ruin to yeah. complete this quest. Because I knew that would make that would make me mad, right? As a player, the only thing that's there is like you can see some islands on the map that you can't visit in the base game. Yeah. So. So how do you feel about that wealth of content in retrospect? Do you ever feel like some measure of your effort? is wasted since most players will never see <laughs> They'll never see everything. Yeah. There, there is a little bit of that. Like 
I know there are certain stories that maybe only a handful of people will actually get to, mm -hmm. but that, that was a huge part of the draw. Like that's what, that's what I love about Tales of the Arabian Nights, you know, putting aside the gameplay. I remember when we first played it, just, it felt like, you know, when you play Catan, you see everything. Mm -hmm. But when, when you play Tales of the Arabian Nights, like I know I'll never see that whole thing. Right. You know, it feels like an endless amount of stuff in this box. Like, right. whoa. And that's what I wanted it to feel like here. Like, I don't actually expect people to, to see everything or even want them to. Right. The, the Part of the draw is that they know that it's there and they'll never see it. Yeah. So you never once, and you can, you can dish with me, Ryan. <laughs> Let's jam. You can dish. You never once thought, you know what, only like three people are going to get this far. So I'm gonna kind of half-ass this, <laughs> this storyline. Well, it, no. On the other, on the uh, on the other hand, I, it's like I knew, oh my gosh, like somebody's gonna read everything here, and somebody's <laughs> gonna see every bit of art. And so, yeah, if we, if it's crappy in this one little spot, that right. might ruin their whole experience. Sure. So, but I mean, I know there are like, I'll, I'm, I'll. I'm the first to admit that there are levels of quality in the game. Mm -hmm. Like I know there are stories that are better than other ones, Sure. but there was definitely like an effort to keep everything at least at a certain sure. level of engagement, especially art. Like, I, Oh man, there's so much art in that game. And I know that the adventure card stack, like most people aren't going to see any of that. Sure. They're, like, they're not even going to see half of that. Right. So yeah. It's a, it's, it was an interesting feeling. How many individual pieces of art did you create for this game? Oh, I mean, I, I'm not sure, but it's like hundreds of pictures, you know? Yeah. Um, more than any of our other games, like a lot more than any of our other games. Yeah. As you were creating all these narratives, was there anything you wanted to include that you just had to leave on the cutting room floor? There were a few storylines i think that we cut because um they were like maybe it was it was going to be you know what happened like there were some storylines that it was going to be too much work and too much space mm -hmm. you know to to it, it wasn't going to fit in this box yeah so we did have to like change stories so that they were maybe more engaging Instead of like stringing them out longer. Okay, sure. Um, would one example of that be the diving suit? Can do you ever use the diving suit? Because I've bought the diving suit twice, Ryan, and I have not found any reason. Oh no, that's too bad. That's see, it's that kind of thing you worry about when like I'm like, okay, is there enough use of the diving suit? There are actually like four four or five places you can use the diving suit. What? I know. And that's the thing about such a big world. You might, yeah, you, it's just like, you might never use that, you know, but there, oh. those are some of my favorite stories. <laughs> that's what's so galling is the first time through, you're like, well, we didn't find any diving suit stuff. The second time through, well, we'd better pay the eight coins or whatever to get this stupid diving suit <laughs> just in case. It. We find on the other side of the map a fishing hole or whatever, uh, and we we I've still never used the diving suit. Too bad. Um, so just a couple more questions for you. Um, 
you know, one, one thing a lot of people have noted was uh, the diversity of the central cast. Uh, were you always hoping to do a diverse crew, or did something help you along in that direction? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even at the very beginning, the concept was um, we're going to go... I, I don't know how accurate I am in saying this, but we're going to go against the grain, mm -hmm. you know, and make a diverse cast. Yeah. <laughs> and as much as we can, you know, yeah, being you know, who we are. We're just a, just like three of us right. are writing these stories. So, um, but yeah, it's important to me. Um, I feel like for years that it's, and I feel like the industry is changing. You mm -hmm. know? Um, it feels like gaming is, is definitely trying to be, um, more representative of different people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like, um, I, I knew I really wanted, a, a, a you know, Captain Odessa to be the, the captain. You yeah. know, it's, you know, this is uh, roughly based on the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, we wanted to, and it's actually quite different. It's only vaguely based on the Odyssey. Yeah, I, was, I was going to say there's a lot less sex. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I did read the Odyssey when I was first, uh, coming, you know, coming up with the ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, but we, we quickly, you know, we took a few, we jumped off a few, um, starting points and then quickly kind of went our own way with yeah. it. Yeah. So there was no after dark version that went full Odyssey. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's fine. Um, so along those lines, you know, one, one person mentioned to me that he has some hesitancy because of kind of a perceived Lovecraftian setting, yeah. where H.P. Lovecraft for years has been kind of a go-to for board games, yeah. probably because it's a free... Because it's a free it's IP. It's in the public domain, yeah. you know. Um, however, of course, there's some there's some tricky connotations with that because Lovecraft was, of course, a virulent racist. And, right. You know, the frog people are like black people, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah he's very yeah, racist. Yeah, he has a lot of xenophobia yes. and... So right. much, so many of his storylines are about the fear of the other and inter uh, yeah. intermingling with the filthy. Um, right. Did you did you ever feel like, so? Here you have a story that does include uh, monsters and such. Right. Were you ever thinking along those lines, like how can we portray these uh, not in a xenophobic way? And right. actually, I feel like I know the answer because of a particular storyline. But um, oh, okay. Well, so one of the tricky things about this setting, and let me just first say that I had no idea who Lovecraft was until, like, I had been into board games for a long time. Yeah. And I always saw the, the, the these Lovecraft games, and I'm like, what, what is this? I had no idea. So I have, like, zero, almost zero background. And when people saw this, they're like, oh, dude, Ryan Lockett is does Lovecraft. This is the Ryan Lockett Lovecraft yeah, sure. game. But I, I almost have no experience with any of those stories. Mm -hmm. So um, it was really more it was really more influenced by the Odyssey, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we I wanted when we created this setting, I wanted to definitely go against the tropes of like you know how in in that like 1900s pulp 
adventure stories. Mm. Like it's like the white crew of men get on this ship, they sail into the jungle, right? And now they're fighting against the you know the indigenous people that are you know not civilized and right. wild and 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 it's very it's kind of like there's a lot, yes you're right it's kind of a it's very it's comes from a racist point of view right all those stories are written from that point of view and so i wanted to make sure not to go from that point of view mm -hmm. yeah i wanted to like we're not going to do any of that kind of scared of the you know <laughs> the people we don't know the cultures that right, we're unfamiliar sure. with um it was more like these are the cultures here and and the theme in the game is more like these cultures are, have been oppressed by the gods mm -hmm. you know um and they have all their own knowledge and, and technology and 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 um values and I, we tried I, you know it's difficult but we tried to make it so that um, there was a little more nuance to the, the people that lived mm -hmm. here. Sure. So, the, what? Which one were you? Were you thinking of a specific? Well, no. Case? I, there, no. There's a because there's um, there are races of monsters. But one of the things I really appreciated is you know at first when I'm sailing around, I think in our first campaign, we just viewed them as antagonists right. because they'd show up and would. You fight them. They'd stab them. me. I'd stab them, <laughs> and that was kind of the extent well, there is of that. our dialogue. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Uh, but then it was on. It was in my second campaign that actually we stumbled on something that kind of put a, a spin on that. Oh yeah. And uh, actually, kind of made me feel a little crummy about maybe stabbing them with such zest <laughs> uh, before. Um, but I really, I really liked that twist because I hadn't seen it coming, yeah. and because it did challenge, you know. No one on my crew is a goat man or, you know, whatever, whatever they were. Um, and so suddenly these people who had been opponents were not opponents. Uh, they were just other folk kind of stuck in this place they didn't necessarily want to be. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. And, and um, I, know, I know the storyline you're, ta you're talking about. Um, Brenna Asplund actually wrote that storyline. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and it influenced... You know that storyline definitely influenced the rest of the game, and I'm not going to say that like, yeah, in the game monsters attack you and you fight them. Like, yes, that is a part of the yeah you know, the game. It is a part of a lot of the game. People are hostile and they attack you. But you know, when we designed it, we tried to make it so that there are many different types of people in the in the world, and like any of them could attack you. Yeah, you know, it's not just like these ones are the extra bad ones. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I think that one of the things you really sidestepped is, you know, now now I think that there are a lot of people awakening to the fact that, for instance, like Tolkien's orcs were based on like Asiatics. Oh. You know, kind of. There's this like uh, race theory that there's Caucasians and Mongoloids and Negroids, and that's it. Oh, that's and, the theory. Yeah, yeah and so the, and so orcs are theory. like Asians. Oh, right. Uh, they're the yellow peril. And so I think people are kind of starting to realize that a lot of the fantasy tropes that they've always just taken for granted may be rooted in something a little ugly. Uh, and so I think that's where a lot of those questions are starting to come up, even though not everybody is not everybody's learning at the same pace, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure we, I will admit, I'm sure we made mistakes mm -hmm. somewhere in here. 
And I knew going into it that it was going to be hard to avoid some mistakes. Yeah. I mean, every we're coming, you know, the game is influenced by 1900s, you know, 1930s, 40s pulp adventures. Sure. Like, it's a really sticky genre, to be honest. Yeah. So, so we tried to do our best to, you know, steer in a, in a new direction. Yeah. I would say. Well, it sounds like uh, you did a good job. I, I feel like it was well done. <laughs> um, so congratulations on uh, putting together a game that I think is a very fine game. Well done. Well, thank you. Um, is there anything else you feel like you need to unburden yourself of before we wrap up? Or... No, this has been a really interesting conversation. It's almost <laughs> been like, it's almost been like a, a nice, um, like, how would I describe it? Like a sort of a, uh, like a debriefing after like, <laughs> you know, like a, a post-mortem. Oh, sure. Of what the experience was, what the final product turned out to be. In some ways, it feels like at a certain point, something like this kind of just goes out of my control mm -hmm. and you just have to see where it ends up. Sure. Yeah. Do you, so you, given that this was a hundred times harder than like a Euro game, do you think you're ever going to try to play with narrative like this again? Or is it just too much effort for the product? <laughs> I mean, what are your feelings there? I mean, after uh, Now or Never is released, um, I mean, my goal is to mostly only do games like this. Oh, really? Yeah. Great. Um, now, they might not all be as big as this. Mm -hmm. um, at this point, I'm playing around with um, the idea to do narrative game, uh, you know, a, a bunch of narrative games like this, but um, in a smaller package, mm -hmm. you know, maybe not quite as open world and expansive, yeah. you know. Um, it'll, it'll help keep me sane, but it'll also allow us to explore more of this type of uh, game design. <laughs> right. Well, and that's actually something I was thinking of too, is could you do something like this where instead of a dozen plus maps, you know, you're, you're doing it on four, you know, yeah. <laughs> just something a little right. more compressed, yeah, more digestible even. Right. And from a creator point of view, it'll be a lot easier to keep the excitement about the project. Mm -hmm. Like, to be frank, I got super burned out near the end of this. <laughs> I'm mean, not surprised. So yeah. How long were you working on this? I mean, it was a, it was like a three year project. Mm -hmm. um, I remember even in the middle, like after a year and a half, we were saying stuff like, I'm so sick of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We take a break. Then we come back. You get the, you get the excitement. Back. Right. But working on, I know that's how video game development works. Right. You don't much longer sometimes. But um, it's just a lot more fun to to be, you know, to do something smaller. Yeah. Um, it's all, it feels more fresh, mm -hmm. you know. It's a little easier to keep under control. Right. So. Well, I'll look forward to uh, whatever you uh, do with this narrative format. I think one of the reasons I like it so much is I think that this, uh, as I wrote in my review, to me, this is sort of a proof of concept that, to me, proves that narrative games don't have to be 
that. <laughs> and I don't want to say that. Uh, I know I know why you say that. <laughs> um, I, I play a lot of narrative games that I think aren't that good. The writing isn't good. They don't merge with their systems. Whereas here you've got this great game bolted onto some really functional stuff. Like, I think it's fun to play, you know, I think one of the best compliments I could pay this and you is that when I'm in the book, I'm excited to get back out to the map and the game. And when I'm in the game, I'm excited to get back into the storybook. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that was the goal. That's, that's a good yeah. to hear. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Ryan. Uh, thank you for your time. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, just for our listeners, he is so handsome. <laughs> He looks like Phil Kilmer. No, it's not true. <laughs> oh, man, I wish I had a picture. <laughs>